May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. It's all in how you tell it. That's the title of a book that I have. It's on, um, it's on preaching. It's one of the many books that I've, I've had and read on preaching, and you, I could load it to you if you ever really wanted to read it. Um, and, the, and the purpose of the book is really to say that there's nothing wrong with sort of first-person narratival preaching. But it's predicated on an idea that this happens, you know, that, that if you preach in the same sort of pattern year after year, week after week, whatever, that, you know, it kind of becomes stale, you know. There's a little, um, you need a little something to spice it up along the way. And so the whole book was sort of predicated on that idea. How can you spice up a regular Sunday sermon? Well, I mean, one way is to tell a story in the first-person narrative, um, but I think that kind of can become a little bit clumsy and uh, a little problematic of its own. There's another way you can do it. You can be provocative. You can say things that offend people. That really gets their attention. I mean, nothing like a good Sunday sermon to make people angry at you. And while I try not to do that, Jesus seems to actually enjoy that method. He actually says things that are so controversial that people get very angry with him. So angry with him that they want to kill him. Now... I think I would rather say things that make people like you. But he doesn't seem to take that tack. He says things that are that are just not good politics. It's not good politics to tell the people who are sort of in control of the, of the community that they're a bunch of hypocrites. Or to tell the, the, you know, the temple brass that they're a bunch of thieves and robbers. It just doesn't, you know, it doesn't make for a good happy ending if you do things like that. And yet he does this all the time. And you know this is what gets him killed. But not all of his provocative sayings are reserved for the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sadducees and the Herodians. Sometimes he says some of his most provocative things to the people who are his followers, his friends, or those who are thinking about perhaps becoming one of his followers. Consider just a few of these statements. This is from Luke fourteen twenty six. Jesus says, if anyone comes uh, to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Wow. I mean, that's pretty heavy, isn't it? Luke twelve fifty one. Jesus said, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, rather division. Matthew eight twenty one. A student of the Bible comes up to Jesus and says he wants to follow him, but he says to him, Lord, first let me go bury my father. And Jesus said, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Wow. Can't even go bury your parent who's passed away? Now, students of the Bible, you know that there are ways to massage these texts. Massage these hard sayings. Make them sort of not nearly as offensive and harsh as they seem. Not nearly as provocative as they might otherwise be. But let me tell you, there is no denying that Jesus could be annoyingly offensive or at least seemingly harsh at times. And in today's gospel, it's not really offensive that Jesus is, is speaking. His, his words aren't, aren't so offensive as they are a bit frightening, or perhaps at least a little disconcerting. The nature of the controversy begins, really, chapter 25 is where our lesson finds us today, cha- the beginning of chapter 25. But all of chapter 24 and 25 really hold together in Matthew's context. It's all one big unit, all one big thought flow and one setting. It happens like this. Jesus is in Jerusalem 
at the time of the Passover. The city is abuzz with, um, with religious fervor and, and pandemonium that comes when you have an influx of a huge population. Most scholars say the population of Jerusalem in the first century was probably somewhere between 30 and 50,000. But that at, at Passover time, it would swell to six times that size. And so a city with an infrastructure built for about 30 or 40,000 people suddenly becomes, you know, 150,000 people or 200,000 people. And they're all crammed into the city at one time. And, and it's just, it's just uh, as I said, pandemonium. I mean, you could imagine what would happen. Goodness, have you been downtown in Hudson at 5 o'clock lately when they closed off the Stowe Road? I mean, you can't even imagine what it would be like all of these people on foot in a small, compact, dense area. Jesus is in this sort of environment. He's sitting outside of the temple with his friends. And one of his friends looks back at the temple and says, Wow, isn't that an amazing structure? It was an amazing structure. The, 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 the temple in Jerusalem was viewed as one of the, um, one of the real major edifices uh, of, the, of the religious world in the Mediterranean area. I mean, it wasn't that its size was so huge. It was just beautiful, gorgeous, and it was the center of, of Jewish religious identity. It had, it had gold, actually trim, real gold on, on the outside and inside of the building. It was, I mean, it was just this amazingly gorgeous building. It was to the ancient world probably what St. Peter's in Rome would be to us today. It was that significant. And his friends say to Jesus, isn't that an amazing building? Let me read to you the beginning of chapter 24. Jesus left the temple and was going away. And when his disciples came to point to him the buildings of the temple, look at them. He answered them, you see all these? It's the, the temple complex with the, the courtyards and the buildings around. You see all of these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This whole thing, this whole complex is about to be destroyed. Like a bomb is going to be dropped on it. It's going to be leveled flat. That would be one of the most shocking statements anybody could make to these disciples, these, these fellow Jews in this time. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, that is Jesus, the disciples came to him privately and they said, Tell us, when will these things be? What things? The destroying of the temple, right? And what will be the sign of your coming at the end of, an age, at the, end of the age? A big mistake that a lot of people make here is they think that Jesus is being asked one question two different ways. When will the temple be destroyed? Which is, when are you going to come at the end of the age? It's actually two questions, not one. When will the temple be destroyed? And when, what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? There are two questions about two different events. And Jesus answers them in turn. When will the temple be destroyed? Well, he tells them exactly when it will happen. He tells them the timing of when it, was going to ha- when it will happen. The te- this generation, Jesus says, the generation that is on the earth will see it happen. This happens, his conversation goes on somewhere between, you know, the years 20 and 30 A.D. In the year 70 A.D., the Romans sack the city of Jerusalem. They tear the temple down to the ground and destroy it. Within 40 years after Jesus had spoken these words, what he said actually happened. It really did happen. The temple was destroyed. But there's a second event. 
The second event, he says, the sign of the coming at the end of the age, he says, of that no one knows the day or the hour. Not I, not the angels, not anyone save the Father in heaven is the only one who knows that time. There is no sign. There is no warning sign. There is no no precursor that's going to happen. There's nothing, you know what's going to happen? It's going to come at a moment you don't expect. The end of the age will happen at a moment when you do not expect it. And then he drives this, this point home with three parables. Never tell something once when you can do it three times, right? There are three parables. The parable of the faithful and wicked servant, the parable of the wise and the foolish girls, and the parable of the three money managers. We get the middle one, the, the parable of the, the wise and foolish girls. The setting in this one is an ancient uh, wedding festival in, in ancient Israel, and we don't really know much about their culture of their weddings, but we do know that it involved, uh, it involved a party. There was always a party. you got to like that about Jesus. You know, there's always a party. And if there's not enough wine, we can fix that too, right? And so um, he, he's going to this, the, the, there's a story of, of a party that's about to happen. It's going to um, take place, and, and there are these ten young women. It seems that their job is to provide an escort for the groom, probably from the, the, from the bride's family home, where the groom will be meeting with the bride's father. Because in the ancient world, marriages were not about love and romance. They were about money and the exchange of property and so on. And so the, the, the groom is meeting with the bride's uh, father, and then he's going to go to the party, to the dance. And the young women are waiting somewhere along the route for him to show up, and they're going to escort him. It's going to be a twilight reception, or twilight procession, rather, into the, uh, into the party. But the groom is delayed. Did you see what happened? They're waiting around, and they're waiting around, and they're waiting around. And, you know, they're thinking, surely, you know, he'll probably be here around 7, and then it's 8, and then it's 9, and then it's 10. And people start to get a little groggy, and they start to drift off. But you can tell that five of these young women were raised by taskmasters, mothers who, um, you know, cracked the whip and, and, and five of them were raised by rather more laissez-faire uh, type of parenting because five of them brought along an extra vessel of oil so that when they walked in their little twilight procession, their lamps would be lit. And five of them just brought along enough oil to fill their first lamp. They fall asleep, they wake up, and the young women without oil say to the women with oil, hey, um, you know, loan a sister some oil. You know, I'm all out and, 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 and it's probably going to happen. And sure enough, there's a shout. He's coming. He's on his way. Oh, oh, hurry. Look, give me some oil. No, the other women say, you know how men are. He might be coming. They might start talking about something else. He might not still come for a while. Go buy some for yourself. And that's what they do. The five without oil run off to buy some. And whilst they're gone, guess who shows up? Imagine his embarrassment. There's supposed to be ten women waiting for him, and now there's only five. Still, they escort him to the party. They get to the party. They shut the door, and it's time to, uh, to celebrate. About the time they get there and get inside, there's a knock on the door. Guess who it is? The five women who went out to buy oil. Hey, we're back. And what does he say to them? I don't know who you are. Get out of here. I mean, it's... Uh, you know, it's sort of a repudiation. I'm, I'm disgusted by you. I never knew you. You're not my friends. My friends wouldn't do that. 
The point of the story is to be ready, to be prepared, isn't it? It's about being ready. It's about always being prepared. That's what Jesus is telling us. It's not a story about about young women and parties and marriage or anything. It's about being ready. Listen to the end of 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 the lesson. Keep awake, therefore, for you do not know the day nor the hour. So the question then to us is what does it mean to be ready? I mean, it's not about oil or weddings or grooms or any of that sort of stuff. What does it mean? Both wise and foolish fell asleep, didn't they? No condemnation about falling asleep. The condemnation is that some didn't come prepared. They didn't come prepared to stay around and be ready when the groom showed up. I think the point is this, that we don't stop living. Being prepared, being ready for the coming of the Lord is not about stopping living. You know, we, we continue to do what people do. We, we work and play. We, we raise families and go out to dinner and we have holidays and, and we do all the sort of things that people do. It doesn't mean to give up your life. That's not what it means to be vigilant about being prepared for the coming of Christ. It means that we are not foolish. We are not unprepared. But it still presses home a little further. Well, what's the ethical imperative? What does it mean? How do you live that out? How can you live in such a way to show that you are prepared? What's the ethical content that you pour into this idea of being ready? And I think you only get that from the very end of the text. It's one of the really downfalls of putting the Bible passage that we're looking at in the, in the bulletin because that assures that nobody else is going to bring a Bible with them. Okay, but if you had a whole Bible with you, it, you'd see at the end of the passage in, in, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25, verse 31, Jesus said, this is the kind of conclusion to this whole sermon conversation, Jesus said, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, this is the final end of the ages, right? This is the time of judgment. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. You're about to say that in just a moment. This is the event that Jesus is talking about. When the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him He will gather all the nations and He will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And He will place the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For, because, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will come and say, When do we do these things? And he says, of course, Whenever you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. Do you know what happens with the others? And he says to the others, be gone from me, for I was naked and you did not clothe me. I was hungry and you did not feed me. And they'll say, when did we not feed you? When you saw the least of these and you didn't do it to them. And then he ends, be gone from me, for I never knew you. Right back to the the same line that we hear the bridegroom say to the ten young women in the parable. Be gone. I, know, I didn't know you. Who are the wise and who are the foolish? The wise are those who have compassion, who care about other people, who see needs all around them as they're living their life, going about their day-to-day lives. They see a need and they fulfill it. They consider what it would be like to be that person living in need. 
And they do what's right. They see an opportunity in the here and now, and they meet it. A few years ago in suburban Milwaukee, a young woman um, was driving SUV through the neighborhood. I don't know what exactly happened, but there was an awful crash. She crashed her car, had a two-year-old and a four-year-old buckled in, in car seats in the back seat. Such a violent accident that she was knocked unconscious and in there, and the, and the car burst into flames. By chance, she, the crash happened right in front of the home of a uh, off-duty firefighter who was sitting in his home with his brother who was also an off-duty firefighter. They jumped out, ran out the front door, ran down to the car. Immediately, the woman, they pulled her out and, and the, the two-year-old out, and they went in to get the four-year-old as the, the car really began to burn now, and he, his car seat was 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 trapped in there. It was, it was uh, lodged so that they couldn't get it out. And they, they were struggling and flames were really starting to take hold. And so one of them pulled the other brother out. He jumped in and then the other, he had to pull him out and go back in. So they, they kept doing this back and forth until they finally dislodged this car seat and pulled this four-year-old boy out of this car that then exploded into flames. He had burned, the little boy had 20% of his body in, in third-degree burns, just a horrible thing. But they saved his life. Now, I'm thinking these guys, John and Joel, their names, were sitting around the front room of their home doing what brothers often do, you know, making fun of one another. I have two brothers. That's what we do. We poke at one another. We make fun of one another. can't believe you like the Miami, you know, Hurricanes. What an awful team, you know. Probably, you know, somebody invited over to do a home repair, watching a football game on television. But when it was needed, when that moment came, when the emergency arose, their training kicked in. They did exactly what they knew to do. They were ready, even though they had not anticipated that event. Be ready. Be always ready. You do not know what day or hour the Lord will come. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.